Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Last week, we talked about death of a vision. And uh, with the idea of death of a vision, I've chosen four things that are unique to leadership that you're not going to find in any leadership manual uh, that's coming out of all the different pop places that you and I have access to. And one of them is the death of a vision. It's what happened to Moses. But it's also happened to everyone who follows Jesus Christ. The mantra of a Christian is, I am crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But the life that I now do live, I live by the faith that I have in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the death of a vision. You had all these dreams about how amazing you are, what you could do to get heaven, what you could do to have heaven like you and to be this amazing person, but in the moment of desperation, you surrendered just like Marcia and Miriam did to Jesus. It's a death of a vision. Well, Moses had this not only in his own personal life, spiritually, but vocationally. He had the sense that there was something on his life. He knew he was a Jew. He was born to Hebrew parents who were Levites. He understood that. He was nursed by his mother, but he was given back to the woman who found him, which was the princess of Pharaoh, one of the princesses, and he was raised for the rest of those years in the palace of Egypt. But he had this sense of destiny. And so in one ill-thought-out moment, He goes to visit his people and he kills one of the slave masters and his life unravels. Pharaoh finds out about it, attempts to kill Moses and Moses has to flee. And now for 40 years, he's shoveling sheep on the backside of the desert. (laughs) Death of a vision. And oftentimes when we have a death of a vision, whether it's some sickness or a fallout of a marriage or the loss of a job, uh, it feels like it's never going to get better. As long as I think, oh, it's going to get better because I'm going to get this and I'm going to remarry or I'm gonna, this is going to happen or this is going to happen, it's really not dead. It's still living. It's when we come to the end of the rope. You know the expression? There's no more rope. That's it. It's either God or nothing that we are, now we're ready for God's vision. So I can't save myself. I'm at the end of the rope. If there isn't a savior or if Jesus isn't the son of God, then there is no heaven for me. Now we are getting somewhere. The death of a vision. The the principle today that we're going to study, and we're going to do it somehow in a compressed form because of time, is the principle of dependency. Moses was a very competent, learned man, but now we find him at at the end of his rope, and he has to be completely dependent on God for this revived, renewed vision of now going back to Egypt 
rescuing his people, but doing it God's way. Father, be with us. Open our eyes and minds and hearts as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So number one, dependency begins with the discovery of a holy, loving God. Look with me to verse one of chapter three. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, which is strange. Don't you want to just go back and, okay, wait, 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 wait. A priest of Midian, not a priest of the Jews. How was their religion like the Jews and how was it different? Sorry, Bible's, you know, uh, quiet on that subject. Nor does it say that Moses adopted the religion of the Midianites. It just simply tells us that his father was quite religious. He was a priest. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Last week I, told, I showed you some pictures that I took of Horeb when I was there last year. Astounding mountain, but it's part of a mountain range that you could point out any number of mountains, but Moses is coming near this mountain. Now, he doesn't know that this is a, an astounding mountain. He doesn't know that this, is, uh, this mountain of Sinai is now going to be in the Bible forever. He's just tending the sheep. And as he comes near this particular mountain, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Quite a strange sight. Uh, first of all, it tells us that the angel of the Lord. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that this is a key phrase. It's a technical phrase. The angel of the Lord, not angels, but the angel of the Lord is referring almost always to what you and I would call a theophany, which is an appearance of God in a manner uh, that we wouldn't necessarily recognize, like the vision that Marzia had of the horse, white and, and loving, uh, but it communicated to her. I love the fact that we have a God who is pursuing us and he knows our language. I love the fact that they're wondering, why can't I speak to God in Farsi? You know, do you and I have to learn ancient Greek or Hebrew to be able to talk to God in heaven? No, he knows your name, he knows your number, he knows how to communicate with you. It's the incarnation, it's God becoming one of us, knowing our love language. So now he's speaking to Moses in a way that would somehow begin to make sense to Moses. The fact that he's seeing a bush that's not burning, it, it seems like it's on fire, but it's not being consumed. It would be like you looking closely at the wick of a candle that's lit. I don't know if you've ever done that before. It's worth spending a few moments the next time you have a, a candle lit 
Because you might ask yourself, why is the wick not consumed? And you might answer yourself, it's because the wax is being melted from a solid to a liquid, and then as it's sucked up the wick, it's converted to a gas, and it's actually the gas wax on fire that's burning, not the wick. Eh? So uh, when I went to Sinai with a few of my friends, I can see some of them here, uh, we were pointed out to where the burning bush was. They actually led us to a bush. And they said, this is the burning bush. And we're all around taking pictures (laughs) of the burning bush that was not on fire, but this allegedly is the bush that was still there at the time of Moses, and here it is today. And we just thought, you know, it's just you are on tours, you just kind of learn to accept some things as like, whatever, you know. (laughs) So there are hundreds and thousands of pictures of this bush around the world now. But it's a picture, I think, of dependency, where Moses is somehow going to be this bush. He's not the one that's on fire. You know, it's God's fire in him that's going to speak through him to Pharaoh. He's not actually the one. It's God through him, right? And that's a picture of you and me. We are only vessels of what God wants to do in and through us. So Moses is tending the flock. He's at this mountain, and he's discovering this metaphor and this theophany that is speaking to him of holiness and dependency. Holiness. The voice out of the bush says, take off your shoes, the ground you're standing on is holy ground. I dare say that, at least in our country, holiness is a lost item. Sharing Christ with someone in Massachusetts once, I told them that they could be forgiven of their sin, that God is a holy God and we've all sinned and Jesus has come to bridge the gap and we could be forgiven. And he says, what is it with you Christians? All it is with you is sin, 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 sin. If God thinks that we have sinned, God just needs to get over it. And I think that's probably a common attitude. I don't find myself leading people to Christ because of their sin anymore. Oftentimes they're looking for significance. Uh, They want to have meaning in their life. They want to have loving relationships. They want to go to heaven. But sadly to say, a lot of people are not plagued with our own sin. But in the lonely moments, when we get all alone, there is that sense that we are on holy ground and we got to do something to get our sin forgiven. And so Moses draws close to the bush and he actually hides his face and he hears God say to him, I have seen the misery of my people. In verse seven, I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering. Whoa, 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 God. You're concerned about suffering on the planet? Yes, 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 yes. If you're a compassionate person, if you care about this subgroup, this people group, this gender, this whatever, you cannot trump God 
regarding compassion. God is more compassionate than you can ever hope to be, and that's just in his little finger. So here's God calling upon Moses because he cares about these people in slavery. And he says, I've come down to rescue them. Notice Moses is not the rescuer, God is. And to bring them out into the land, uh, a good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey. So not only is God calling Moses to be his sub-redeemer, but he also has a redemption plan. He's gonna bring them to the home of the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Termites, and the Megabites. And now (laughs) the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them and I'm sending you. Wow. What a paradoxical thing to see. A pure and holy God who is compassionately, lovingly in pursuit of sinful people in slavery. Love the picture because that's the picture of you. The start of you discovering your dependency on God is to realize that God, holy and loving, is in pursuit of you. You didn't pursue him. He pursued you, just like he did Mariam and Marzia. That he pursued them, and he's pursuing you. Today, if you haven't given your heart and life to Christ, he's pursuing you. He pursued me, the hound of heaven. And if you are a believer, he's still pursuing you. He ain't done. He's chasing you down. He wants you to discover who he is, and for that to set you free. So Moses is realizing here in his first step of dependency that there is a God and it is not me. What a great lesson to learn. So dependency begins in discovering a holy, loving, and pursuing God. I think the story of the prodigal son kind of sums it up where the prodigal thinks that his father is going to be ticked off with him, upset with him, that he spent his inheritance on a sinful way of life, and uh, that maybe his father would at least have enough compassion to let him come back, not as a son, but a servant. Instead, we find a father who's running down the road because he sees his son from afar, And that's you, you're in the story. God pursuing you and he grabs you and he hugs you and kisses your neck and he welcomes you home. That's the beginning of dependency. Number two, dependency is pure honesty about God's self, which translates into humility. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and to bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Such a great question, great question. Who am I? Too often, and maybe it's just the, the entries I read in social media, but it's, you chose the right guy, God. Of all the people you could have searched for, I'm it. And all of the candidates that run for office, I'm it. 
all the people that we see in media, in the headlines, I am it, and this is why I'm it. And, and it's so freeing to say, I am not it. I can't do it. I'm just me. So Moses asked this great, great question. Who am I? It's the question that philosophers, theologians, and I dare say scientists have been wrestling with. Who am I? Who are you? Are you a hunk of slime that's just beautifully evolved? Praise Mother Nature. (laughs) Are you just your own person that's just amazing? Who are you? Are you just a catalog of that's made up of your personality profile? Or are you just a a list of talents? Or are you just the sum of all the things you own and all the people you know and all the places you've been? Is that who you, who are you? So Moses asked the question. You know, I think of all the species on the planet, we're the one species that doesn't know who we are. Have you ever thought about that? A hawk knows. The hawk doesn't, you know, crawl around like a crocodile. He knows, I'm a hawk. I soar through the air. Crocodile knows, I'm not a dolphin. I am just a crocodile, amphibious. But the dolphin knows that he's not a hawk or a crocodile. They live within the pocket of who they were created to be. We're the one species that doesn't seem to know who we are. And it goes all the way back to the garden. When God defined who we were, dependent on him, but you're free, we challenged that. And we said, we want to be our own person, and we disobeyed God there in that ancient garden, and forever we have been searching for who we are, finding our identity in people, places, professions, and it's coupled with humility. Listen to Andrew Murray. Humility, the place of entire dependency on God, is the first duty of, and the highest virtue of a creature and the root of every virtue. And so pride, or the loss of this humility, is the root of every sin and evil. Just being humble. There is a God, I need him, and it is not me. And I live in dependency on him. If you think about this quote, you realize Andrew Murray, this great South African uh, devotional preacher writer where it's really on to something I would love to linger there humility then is the result of anyone who has truly been around God and discovered not only who God is but who I am not have you ever asked yourself how you would know if someone was around God you know, I was around God, so and, and I saw this, or I did this, or um, how would you know? One of the guarantees is humility. You're around God, and then you're like, oh, I'm nobody. Isaiah saw God, woe is me. 
Peter sees Jesus do this great miracle of multiplying the fish. He comes to shore and he says, get out of here. I'm a sinful man. There's this sense of humility that comes over us when we're around God. I was around a a young pastor and uh, he was very proud of his church was blowing up. That's uh, church language, that it was growing. And he was speaking for this great big conference, you know, maybe 20,000 people. And everybody wanted to know, why is your church blowing up? Why is it so big? And I just happened to be there, not as a speaker, but a nobody. And, uh, and they put him preaching using a music stand. And he has his big notebook and so forth. And in the process, the music, and there was a lot of me in the sermon, not me, but uh, the preacher, and the music stand falls over, and we're all aghast, like, what's he, and his notes go flying everywhere. The audience froze. He drop kicks the music stand in the audience and says, get this flimsy thing out of here. You could feel the whole audience turn against him. Because there's this, that's a very proud, arrogant thing to say. If you've been around Jesus and you have something to say to us, come through the door of humility. Don't come through the door of entitlement. I'm entitled to a better pulpit. So humility becomes vital to our life and Moses is touted to be in Numbers 12.3 a very humble man, the more humble, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Wow. So God says, Moses, I will be with you Verse 12 of chapter 3, I will be with you and this will be a sign to you that I've sent you. When you are brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So when you come back to this mountain, you're going to realize, oh my gosh, it's all God. So Moses now begins this long dialogue, and I don't have time to read it to you because we just don't have the time, but uh, most of you know some of the dialogue. If you were called to do something great that's bigger than you, that you know you don't have the capacity to do it, what would you do? You would try to figure out a way to not do it, right? (laughs) So Moses begins, and he says, suppose the Israelites... In verse 13, ask for your name. I don't have your name. I don't have your card. I don't have your address. And then he moves on from there, and he says, what if they don't believe me? And then he moves on from there in chapter 4, verse 10. uh, And he does it with respect, but he says, pardon me, God, but, you know, I'm not eloquent. Maybe I used to be when I was a prince, but now I'm a shepherd, and, and and I... it's just not going to work. And then finally, he says, pardon me, but just send someone else. (laughs) But out of this protesting, we discover several things about God. One of is his name. His name is I am who I am. Now, if you feel like you've heard that before, you're right. Those of us raised on Popeye, Popeye, we heard something (laughs) 
very similar. I am who I am. But God is actually saying something different. He's saying, I am not the God of the Nile. I'm not the God of the crocodile. I'm not the God of of Egypt. I'm not just the God of Israel. I am the God who cannot be defined by any object, place, or thing. I'm God, God. I define you. Dependency. You don't define me. He's not the God of your devotions. He's not the God of your church service. He's not your God of your translation of your Bible. He's not the God of the way you like to worship. He is God, God. And we now are on his terms, not on our terms. I am who I am. Now, the interesting thing about that is the verb to be, being, is embedded in this phrase, out of which comes the name Yahweh. You ask where that came from. It comes from this very phrase. And the verb to be means that God is always in the present to redeem and help you and be there for you. That's why it's so critical that Jesus, in his ministry, he called himself, I am. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews knew what he was saying. He is the I am God. Well, we need to move on and come to the last lesson here. So dependency is what we're talking about. So now Moses says, it says of Moses, he took his wife and sons and put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt and he took the staff of God in his hand. He set out. I like this because Moses is going to dependently obey. It really doesn't matter how much he protested. It matters whether you do. It doesn't matter to me how many hurdles you knocked over. It matters to me that you crossed the finish line. It doesn't matter to me how many times you failed that you got up because Jesus asked you to do what he's called you to do. That's what keeps everything going in, in all of life. We're not perfect creatures. And so, yeah, there's going to be protests, but in the end, did you do it? Jesus tells us the parable of the two sons. The one said, son said, yes, father, I will do all that you have asked. I will go out and mow my lawn, your lawn. And the other son said, I don't have to mow the lawn. I hate mowing the lawn. You know I got hay fever. I hate to mow the lawn. And you know that. And, well, the first son actually did not mow the lawn, and the second son did. And that would be me. <laughs> Through a lot of protests and a lot of what ifs and if onlys, ultimately, Moses obeyed. He took his wife, his sons, and he head out. And all he had was the staff of God in his hand. Isn't that the beautiful picture of a powerless person that's going off to do a great work? So sometimes, because we want all of us to discover our gifts and our callings, sometimes we'll give you an inventory to help you discover what your strengths are 
and the kind of things that you like to do. And, and so we'll say, well, you're a great people person. Maybe God has something in regards to being with people a lot for you. Or you're really good at accounting. You love numbers. <laughs> so maybe God has something to do with numbers for you. But I want us to be careful there because this isn't a story about competency. This is a story about discovering who I am not to be dependent on a God who is everything for me. So could it be that God's called you to be the next president of the United States? Why not? Now, I can hear all the Washington reasons, but that's not a God reason. Could it be that God's called you to be a great surgeon? Could it be that God's called you to minister to your neighborhood and start something going? I was amazed when a woman came to me and said, I said, how did this Bible study get going in Rancho Santa Fe? And she says, I just went door to door and asked my neighbors, would you like to join a Bible study? And I knew that women like to go to other people's houses. And I said, well, what was the success rate? 50%. That's really, really high. It just doesn't seem likely that that would work. That it's in our inadequacy that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. That would be a good Bible verse, wouldn't it? (laughs) Years ago, uh, Jan and I were down in Costa Rica uh, and we decided to go on a zip line. How many of you have been on a zip line? Yeah, it's like one third of the, all the people. But this was like the mother of all zip lines that, that not only goes over waterfalls and, and you drag your feet through water as you're going to the, but you also go over valleys that are a quarter of a mile long and, and you soar like Superman over the valley with two things on your and your chest and your feet and your arms spread out. And here's what I noticed about everyone on the first uh, line that we were on, that everyone grabs a hold of this pulley that's going along the zip line and holds on with a death grip. Like white knuckle, and if you ask them, how did you get to the other side? Because I really held on tight. (laughs) It's not how you got there. So the second time, you let go a little bit, and you notice you're actually harnessed in, and it's not you at all. (laughs) And by the third or fourth line, you're actually letting your hands go, and you're dangling as you're going across, and I had some people last night say, no, I'm never letting go, never letting go. But this kind of a picture of life, it never was you. A human being is bigger than you. A human being is a son or daughter of the living God, and there is no limit to who you can be or become as we release and become dependent on him. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Just hang out in me and you'll bear much fruit. But 
apart from me, you can do nothing. Jan and I drove up, not drove up, uh, flew up to hear our sons play. We'd never been to Napa. I'm a Californian, never been to Napa. And uh, so we flew up to hear our sons play in Napa. And I was sitting there, and God spoke to me through a song that I've heard a thousand times, Learning to Breathe. And the song is, I'm learning to breathe. I'm discovering, in a sense, what it is to be dependent on you in the most rudimentary sense, breathing. Now, become aware of your breathing right now. How many of you have been thinking about your breathing while I've been preaching? Come on, lungs, keep it together. Take a breath again, don't stop. Got to keep doing this for the next 40 years. How many of you are keeping your heart beating? It's like, beep, 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 come on, beep, 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 beep. The autotomic system is just like working, right? But we begin to learn to breathe. Can you imagine the little baby coming out of the womb and takes that first gasp? (sighs) Mom and dad are thrilled to hear it, thrilled to hear the crying But that child now, for the first time, is learning to breathe. And that's what we're learning as children of God. The kingdom of God is this, becoming like a little child, Jesus says. What is he talking about? He's talking about dependency on him. That's lesson two. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can learn your word, we can study this great insight of dependency for great leaders who are following you. And God, we want to be, we want to learn this humble art of being dependent on you. Speak to us this week, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.